Hello and welcome to Represent, an Elect 535 podcast. We're bringing you a roadmap to build a better Congress. My name is Nick Bushkar, and as always, I'm joined by the co-founders of Elect 535, Michelle Olson and Rena Schneer. Hey, Rena. Hello, Nick. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Nick. We're also joined by fellow political journalist Angela Carbone. Hi, Angela. Hi, Nick. Today, we set our sights on the House of Representatives. While the Democrats currently hold a slim majority, the recent U.S. Census results and the upcoming nationwide redistricting will change the landscape of what's possible for 2022. Michelle, what is that landscape and how do we get here? Well, the landscape is, as you said, a slim majority in both houses where we are relying upon Kamala Harris to come in for a tie in the Senate. And the House, we are at 218 Democrats to 211 Republican held seats with six vacancies currently. Uh, The Texas six seat that was vacated by Ron Wright, who died of COVID recently, will go Republican because they've had their special election primary in which two Republicans were the winners. So the winner of that runoff will eventually take that seat, which will bring it up to 218, 212. So there's a tiny, tiny majority for Democrats right now. And What that means in terms of the midterms does not bode well for Democrats in Congress. If you go back and look at the last three midterm races, you'll see that the party in power usually loses and often loses big in the midterms. So going all the way back to 2010, if you remember when Barack Obama was in office, we had just gotten through all of the TARP legislation uh, due to the financial crisis in 2008. And at that time, there was a huge backlash for Democrats who had passed that TARP legislation and as well Obamacare. And that resulted in the Democrats losing 63 seats in the House in what Barack Obama coined as a shellacking. Back in 2012, when Barack Obama won uh, his second term, there were eight seats that flipped back to the House, but it wasn't enough to give Democrats a majority. So Obama was pretty hamstrung for his second term of office. And then again in 2014, Republicans gained further seats, another 13. And then in 2016, when uh, Trump took over, uh, the Dems actually gained four seats back. And then we all remember 2018 when there was such horror about what was going on at the administration that finally the Democrats were able to win 39 seats and take the House back. And we've had the House um, since then. However, in 2020, remember, Democrats lost 14 seats. So it's a it's a slim majority that we have now. And if history is any precursor uh, or any indicator of what's to come, we will probably 
lose democratic seats, especially if we think that the population is not happy with legislation that is passed over the next 18 months before they go in to cast their ballots. In addition to that, we have some House Democrats who are retiring, some pretty big name House Democrats in some swing states. Ann Kirkpatrick is in Arizona too, and she's been a a strong Democrat in a traditionally Republican state, and that's probably going to be a hard seat for Dems to hold. In a similar story plays out in Texas 34 with Philemon Vela, who's retiring, Sherry Bustos, who in the last election ran the Red to Blue program for the Democrats. It was in a classic swing state district in Illinois. She's retiring. Charlie Crist in Florida is is giving up his seat to run for governor. Uh, You may remember that back in 2011, I believe, he was governor of Florida and lost um, and has a House seat now. And then the last prominent Democrat uh, giving up their seat is Tim Ryan, giving up his very swing Ohio 13 seat. Tim Ryan's running for that open Senate seat in Ohio, um, which is great. But again, it's going to be hard for the Dems to hold that seat. Uh, and then there are just a lot of very vulnerable seats. Um, we've gone through and done some analysis and we've identified, oh, at least 23 seats, which we could classify as vulnerable democratic seats and another six or seven that are vulnerable Republican seats. And well, you may be asking, well, what makes a seat vulnerable? Um, and I thought I would ask uh, my good friend and data wizard, Rena Schnur to give us an idea of what exactly it means to be a vulnerable seat. What do you think, Rena? Thanks, Michelle. So you mentioned that has been pre- pretty consistent that during the midterm, the party that is not in the White House is gaining seats. It's maybe a little bit less consistent uh, during the years with the presidential election. So we were trying to look at factors, what we can predict, what we can rely on from history and uh, looking forward to see what seats are most vulnerable. So there are, I would say, two categories of factors, ones that we know today because they depend on history and ones that we still going to learn during the election, even up to the last days of the cycle. So let's just talk about what we know. Um, We know who the incumbents are, right, for the most part, except the retiring ones. And so we know who those candidates are, at least, how they did in previous elections, especially the most recent couple of elections, how their margin of winning uh, moved up or down, how much money maybe they have uh, raised. It's still... pretty early to know, so we won't go much into that, but in general, that's an important factor. And then we have the factor about the district itself, because it's not just the candidate, it's also the demographic and um, how the district in general is perceiving the different parties. And for that, we rely on uh, a factor or an parameter that's called PVI, Partisan Voter Index. And really what it is, is 
an indication of how a district leans either Republican or Democrat compared to the uh, nation as a whole. Um, and so we can look at the uh, PVI if you want to be a bit more mathematical. It is calculated based on the last two presidential election, the margin by which they were uh, won or lost in each district and how that is calibrated to the margin that uh, the candidate won or lost in the uh, national election. So let's just take an example because I think that kind of uh, brings it back to home. When we talk about PVI, Partisan Voter Index, we would say it's Republican plus 10. That means it's least Republican. It, it leans Republican. Maybe it's Republicans plus two. That means it leans Republican, but very little. If it goes Democrat plus five, it leans Democrat. Democrat plus 15, even more so leaning Democrat. So that's kind of how we, when we talk PVI, you may hear us sometimes mention this Republican plus 10, Democrat plus five, or R plus 10, D plus five. I just want to kind of to get a sense to let you know that in 2018, as Michelle mentioned, a lot of uh, House seats were flipped blue. But practically, no seat with a district, in a district with a PVI higher than Republican plus 10 was flipped. So you can see that this is kind of a very challenging types of district. So we wanted... Kendra really Horn. <laughs> yeah. I said practically. <laughs> uh, right. Uh, I just want to also mention that one of the reasons to look into that factor, specifically that parameter, is to also get a sense of the impact of uh, the former president, which I call the former guy, uh, how he impacts these district elections, the House elections, and how will that play a role in 2022? So what we did is, uh, and in fact, Michelle did this excellent calculation of what was the partisan voter index, the PVI, during the two Obama wins in 2008 and 2012, and what was the PVI during the former guy's wins in 2016, and then when he, when he lost in 2020. And we compare them to see how kind of the district shifted because of him being present in the election landscape, let's say, even though he is not sometimes a candidate. And that plays a role into how vulnerable some of the candidates are. I also want to mention, uh, and we'll talk later about the factors that we don't know much about. But before that, uh, th there is a debate going on what is his impact on the elections. And we kind of learned in the last two weeks that his impact is alive and well as, and strong. And some people would say, well, the reason is because if you want to win in the primary you in the, as, as a Republican, you need to support him. However... If you support him, it puts you in jeopardy, especially in swing districts, if you want to win in the general election. We get the Roy Moore type of 
a phenomena where a candidate very uh, radically leaning right and very much supportive of him and all this, his conspiracy theories and the big lies will come into play, will win the primary, but then that will give maybe a better way for the Democrats to win in the general election. So I want to... I want to kind of uh, send it to Angela and Nick. And the way we kind of looked at the different district, the vulnerable candidates, is we looked at candidates that are in district that moved from Mitt Romney, who won the district by a lot, to uh, Biden. And then on the reverse, candidates in districts that won by Obama and then won by the former guy. So I'll uh, send it to you, Angela, to talk about some of those uh, districts sure. in detail. Thanks, Rena. Um, yeah, seven of the incumbents who are vulnerable are, certainly can be looked at in relation to the Romney to Biden shift, um, which, as you said, was the shift that occurred between in within the individual district between their support of Romney versus this last election, their support of Biden. Let's head south to talk about Carolyn Bordeaux, 7th Georgia District. Um, she was the bright spot in November 2020. She was the only congressional candidate to to swing a district from red to blue and won in the district which had been Republican for more, a quarter century. Um, and the shift between Romney, who routed Obama in 2012 by, by 21 points, um, in 2020, Biden won the district by five points, which is a shift of 26 points. It's huge. Um, and why did this happen? I, I, a good deal of it has to do with the shifting demographics of her district. It's become more suburban, more uh, more educated, and more likely to support Democratic candidates. If I could jump in and say that Caroline herself, you know, alluded to that and explained that uh, she's from the area. But if you look around, even Lucy Macbeth, District Georgia Six, which is which is adjacent to that, also kind of changed demographically. So these two districts together were kind of a, a shift in Georgia. Another feature to point out is that both of those districts had huge influxes of immigrants, and I know Georgia Seven is now a majority minority district, meaning that people of color are the majority in that district. Hey, and I can tell you that actually on, uh, there was the factor of the AAPI uh, demographics and the Forsyth district or county in Georgia was one of the top four in the country where there was a, a very large increase in uh, this kind of demographics. So if we, if we leave Georgia and we head out to the Midwest... Uh, Lauren Underwood, Illinois 14, is another vulnerable candidate whose vulnerability 
is from for several factors, but one being the, the Romney-Biden shift. Romney beat Obama by 10 points, whereas shift forward to 2020 and Biden won 50.2% to Trump's 48.8, which means he won by 1.3 points over Trump. But certainly he overcame the 10 points that Romney showed in in uh, 2012 um, and added another 1.3 points for himself. The significant aspect here is that Trump actually performed better in that district in 2020 than he did in 2016. So that's not necessarily a good shift for the Democrats. Um, and she herself turned in a weaker showing in 2020 than 2018. She performed about 2% lower than she did in, in uh, 2018 than she did in 2020. And in uh, Pennsylvania, we have Connor Lamb in the 17th district, but we don't know if Connor is going to be running anyway. He's making a lot of noises to run for Senate in Pennsylvania. Um, and he lost a lot of support in his district from 2018 to 2020. Um, and Romney did win over Obama in 2012. Biden beat Trump by 2.7. So uh, it, it shifted about four points. There are other things besides the numbers. The strengths and weaknesses of candidates of the opposing candidates that that these incumbents faced, whether it was in 2018 or in 2020. Um, someone like Lauren Underwood actually falls into that category because she beat a five-term incumbent in 2018 by five points, again, with part of the blue wave. Um, at, but Huffgren had served in the U.S. in the U.S. Congress, but prior to that, he was in the Illinois State Senate and the Illinois House of Representatives. So he was a strong statewide candidate um, where Lauren Underwood was an, is, was an RN who worked in the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, but was not a political animal per se in terms of running for office. Uh, now as an incumbent in 2020, Underwood was challenged by Jim Oberweiss, and she just squeaked by by only about one point, which is very bad news because Oberweiss, if we want to talk about strengths of candidates, uh, Chicago Magazine called Oberweiss the worst candidate in Illinois history, having now lost seven elections for statewide and federal office. And the Republican ticket was taught by the least popular president of modern times, Donald Trump. So the fact that Underwood lost some support is is really troubling and I think keeps her well into the vulnerable category. Um, now, in terms of candidates and opponents, Tom Malinowski is another from New Jersey 7. Um, he won office again in the blue wave in 2018, routing Republican incumbent Leonard Lance by five points. Lance was an, was an incumbent, but had run as a moderate. But by the time he was running for re-election, he had 
moved further to the right because of the Tea Party strength in the Republican Party. Um, and some of Malinowski's support came from those who were much more moderate and did not like the, the direction. Uh, however, in 2020, Malinowski didn't, uh, didn't perform as well. He beat his challenger, Thomas Keene Jr., by only about 1%. And Keene was a better candidate, clearly. He, he actually has been called part of the New Jersey political royalty. His father was a, a former New Jersey governor. His grandfather was a U.S. congressman from New Jersey. His great-grandfather and his great-uncle were both U.S. senators. And his grandmother's family descended from John Winthrop, first governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. So he has quite the pedigree and is a, was a very strong candidate. But the bad news for Malinowski is it looks like Keene may run again. Is he more moderate, Angela, than the previous incumbent? <laughs> yes, he's more moderate than um, Leonard Lance. But, he, but he, he's also thought of as capable, um, he's a political animal, and he, know, he knows what he's doing. Um, it, he was the minority leader of the New Jersey State Senate, and he just resigned. And uh, sounds like he's making noises to become a, a candidate. And that could be very bad news for Malinowski, because he's going to face a, another strong candidate in a midterm election. So that, that could be tough on him. And, and that supports maybe this notion that if the primary winner in some districts, not necessarily the, this particular New Jersey district, are very radically right and uh, supportive of the former guy, then that may be an opening for uh, the Democrats to get or to at least keep that seat. One of the other, one of the other factors that Rena had mentioned is demographics. And that... That is in play in a number of the districts that I looked at, including Virginia 07, which is now being represented by Abigail Spanberger. And again, she was one of the blue wave in 2018. Uh, she just won election, a slim margin, but it was a newly created district in, in 2018. 18 or relatively new. Um, and you can see how conservative her district had been was in thinking that former House Minority Whip Eric Cantor lost in the primary in 2014. And that was because he was being challenged by a Tea Party candidate. So in 2014, the, the, certainly the pendulum was swinging further and further to the right. Um, and Span, but Spanberger managed to uh, beat the um, the more radically right candidate. Uh, and in 2014, a federal panel of judges ruled that it had been gerrymandered, so that there was not enough minority representation. So the court ordered redistricting moved. Part of the district, uh, Hanover County, which is 86.7% white and solidly Republican, from the 7th district to the already conservative 1st district. And that's one reason why um, Abigail Spanberger was able to eke out a win. Uh, her, her support is mainly high college, educated, suburban 
residents who revolted against Trump. And Haley Stevens in Michigan. Let's go back to the Midwest. Um, two Midwestern candidates may have some issues with demographics. Um, Haley Stevens in Michigan, 11th District. Uh, she She's in a district that lies right in the middle between two very, very different areas of Michigan. One is Detroit, uh, industri well, formerly industrial area of Detroit, which has a pretty high poverty rate, which has a much lower education rate than than uh, or educational attainment than the rest of the state. And the, on the other side, on the um, other side, we have Ann Arbor, which is the college town, highly educated, 71% white, less than 5% black versus Detroit, which is 78% black and about 15% white. Uh, median house, household income in Metro Detroit is about half of what it is in the state. And in Ann Arbor, it's more than double of Metro Detroit. So we have very two very different areas bordering this this central uh, Michigan 11. Um, so if there are any shifts in population that are coming from either the Detroit metro area or Ann Arbor, as it gets more and more expensive to live, people will, sh will move out into the burbs. Um, that could ma make a big difference in, in Haley Stevens' 2022 bid. And lastly, I'd like to talk about Annie Angie Craig um, in Minnesota 2nd District, which has been called the District of the Revolving Door Republican Candidates. One of the more interesting things about Craig's 2020 campaign was her Republican opponent, Tyler Christner, wasn't an experienced legislator, but he was a former Marine. But it was another of her opponents, Adam Weeks, who was the legalized marijuana now party candidate, that he, he provided probably the more interesting narrative of that election because before sometime, I believe in the summer before, before the election in 2020, um, he admitted on a recording that Republican operatives offered him $15,000 to run for Congress against Craig to pull votes away from her in the second district. He's quoted as saying, they want me to run as a third party liberal candidate, which I'm down. I can play the liberal, you know that. And they, but the, uh, but Weeks' story wasn't over until September when he died of an overdose. And he still got 24,751 votes. Craig's the first openly lesbian mother to be in Congress, uh, first woman to be elected in Minnesota's second district, and the first openly gay person elected to Congress from Minnesota. And she's only 49. Um, but Tyler Christner, who lost in 2020 to Craig, is is has already announced as her opponent and now he has the name, you know, this former Marine now has a name recognition and the backing of the Republican Party. So that 
that could that could have a problem for for her. That could pose a problem for her. Um, and the, the the demographics of the district are interesting as well because um, it includes the Twin Cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul, the the, the metro area of it. Um, and you know, well, well, what's happened with the protests on the streets of Minneapolis and St. Paul, the conviction of Derek Chauvin, will that have any kind of a lasting impact on on what um, what Angie Craig is going to have to face? Um, in addition, one of the largest employers in the district is uh, the largest oil refinery in Minnesota, which is owned by the Koch brothers. So I think you might find a little support there for Republican candidates. So, so Nick, where, where, where are all your candidates uh, hanging on by a thread? <laughs> yeah. So I looked at four districts in an attempt to try and gain some understanding of the Obama to Trump shift, right? And so the districts I looked at were Pennsylvania 8, Maine 2, Illinois 17, and Wisconsin 3. And just sort of going over a few of the similarities that I found. One, they are heavily white districts. In 2019, the uh, U.S. white population was at 76%, and um, the lowest level uh, out of those four was 79.5%, um, all the way up to 94% white. And you have uh, Maine 2 and Illinois 17. Those are heavily rural uh, areas over in the 70s plus. And then Pennsylvania 8 and Wisconsin 3 are about 50-50 rural to urban. You also look at the PVI ranges. And the range of PVI for these districts um, are R plus 2 to R plus 6. And I looked on GovTrack as well. And each of these candidates that won... They are right of center relative to Democrats. So these are – they're not centrists. They're not leftists. They're not progressives. I mean, look, progressive is used as a marketing term a lot, right, these days. So all Democrats like to call themselves progressives. But if you look at their voting record, they are to the right of the elected officials. So if you dig a little bit further, you definitely have differences. Jared Golden of Maine, too. He's an interesting candidate. He's a millennial veteran, and he is the first member of Congress who uh, was elected by ranked choice voting, and that was in 2018. Just kind of for the audience who may not be familiar with ranked choice voting, uh, if you could say a word about that, but really it means that the election weren't too, was too tight to call, to call the election, so they had to basically... Uh, take a second choice of some of the voters that voted for a lower uh, ranked candidates and factor that in. Only then he won. Now, the district itself is interesting because in 2014, a Republican won by five points. Uh, it was an open seat with a retiring Democrat. In 2016, a Republican won by nine points. And then in 2018, uh, Jared Golden shows up and beats the Republican incumbent um, the Republican incumbent at that point uh, sued because he said that ranked choice voting was unconstitutional. Uh, he lost. It's not. Another interesting factor in this is if you go over to Pennsylvania 8, Matt Cartwright, he was first elected in 2012, you know, almost a decade now of being an incumbent. 
And this is a PVI R plus five district. However, in 2018, Pennsylvania as a state was ordered by uh, the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania to be completely redistricted. Uh, The Pennsylvania GOP lost their appeal at the Supreme Court. And so you went from basically Republicans holding 13 districts in 2016, Democrats holding five, uh, to uh, a 9-9 split in 2018. And so you can see the effect of the redistrict maps uh, in 2018 there. If I could jump in, I'd like to point out that in both Maine and Pennsylvania, Trump was polling just awfully in the public opinion polls in 2018. So although there were some demographic shifts, I think that there's a lot to do with how the administration was uh, viewed in those reasonably moderate states by comparison. Oh, I agree. And uh, so I pulled up the polling to hop back over to Maine too. I mean, if you look at the final 538 polling averages, so Golden was up by nine in 2020. He ended up winning by six. So, you know, margin of error, that's fine. And I would just mention that in Maine specifically, they split the electoral college. Uh, You're giving two for the state and then one per district. So that district two, Golden's district, went as an electoral college vote for the former guy. Exactly. And well, so back over Pennsylvania 8, I mean, Matt Cartwright is what I view as the epitome of the man on the ground. He has lived in the region for almost all of his life. He uh, got a law degree from the University of Pennsylvania, practiced in the Scranton area. In 1992, he was a delegate for Bill Clinton. He's been given local awards by Rotary International and the Boy Scouts. And he's just sort of a man of that region. And so I I watched an interview with him on uh, CBS, and he even said that his entire plan was getting people to just know that he cared about them, right? And so in this district that shifted, I mean, in 2020, he won by three and a half points, and uh, Trump won that district by about four and a half points. And so that's a, what, seven-point swing? And so... For something that big to happen, that's what you're looking at, is the people of that district knew this man. He was an incumbent. He's been there forever. And they understood that he was not some—how do I say this? We are in this cultural moment where people use proxies to identify what group you're a part of. I mean, people put the label of Antifa on Joe Biden, which is silly, but it just happens. Uh, and if you don't dig into something deeper, then you can just put these left labels on on the left and the right labels on the right and not look at it in a nuanced way. And so Matt Cartwright rose above that in his own district. You can like Matt Cartwright, you can like a Democrat, and you can still be disappointed with Nancy Pelosi or not like AOC. Does that make you feel that he's not quite as vulnerable as he might look like on paper? Well, precisely. I mean, looking at the shift in the district, that's what you're saying is you you would be worried that a shift towards Trump in such big numbers uh, from uh, let's look at it here. I mean, Cartwright won a nine point win in 2018 uh, and a three and a half point win in 2020. There's an issue here because of the redistricting in 2018. 
2016, he ran and won in Pennsylvania 17. And so it's a similar boundary, but it's different. And, and in my mind, the, the reason it's important is so there is still a shift, but the strengths of the candidate matters, clearly. So it's not only the impact of the presidential election when it happens, and even if the, or the candidate or the president in the background, but also the strengths of the candidate for both sides. I completely agree. And if you're not on the ground, it's tough to pull out those nuances. But it's but Cartwright himself seems to be a consistently strong candidate in an ever-shifting region. And that's his strength. So if we switch over to some place like Wisconsin 3, you see the same thing with Ron Kind. Ron Kind is an incumbent since 1997. In 2014, he won by 13 points. In 16, in 2016, this is the interesting part to me, is he went unopposed. And in 2018, he won by 20 points. And then in 2020, he won by three points. Okay. And so in 2012, um, Barack Obama beat Mitt Romney by about seven points. In 2016, Trump comes in and defies all odds and wins Wisconsin by a point, beating Hillary Clinton. And then Biden takes it back in 2020 by about a point. Well, I was going to say, do you think it's safe to say that in an off year election like we are in, that these really strong candidates without Trump on the ballot will probably pers- will probably be victorious just on the strength of their candidacy. And so we should worry less about a Ron Kind or Matt Cartwright than another candidate. That's what I'm getting at, is that certain candidates that we're looking at, and I think what you said, it's Ron Kind and Matt Cartwright. These are exactly the types of candidates that I do think we need to worry about less. It's that in 2016, Ron Kind went unopposed. Uh, and then seeing this distinction between 20 points in 18 versus three points, a uh, three-point win in 2020, um, without Trump on the ballot, you do not have these uh, the motivating factor for a real serious subset of uh, the electorate. Well, maybe that's so, but I would also say that there has been a shift. If you look at the Obama years and then the 2016 and 2020 PVIs, there have been a tremendous shift towards Republican, towards the former guy winning. And my, my fear is, on the other hand, is that this rage or that... Um, energy factor, what energizes the base of the former guy that's still very much in play will bring them out to vote, especially if you say these elections in Wisconsin, they were stolen from us. We are going to go in large amount and vote. So even though he is not on the ballot per se, his um, spirit and what the factors that brought people to uh, out to vote, and we will talk about it in a minute about the turnout, will be still there. I think that's a reasonable fear. I I I agree with that. However, one of the biggest pieces of, pieces of evidence that we have post November 2020 is the Georgia special election, the two runoffs uh, in Georgia, and those are look. There are a lot of that is a that there are a lot of factors to that race itself, but. Uh, what you saw was is Donald Trump yelling every single day about the stolen election and the people who were not backing him, and uh, it didn't go that way. There was not this massive turnout for him. Uh, Democrats won, and so I agree with the fear. Uh, however, um, I do think that um, Donald Trump as a candidate 
specifically being on the ballot, there is evidence to show that he is an individual force. And the fact that he called the elections fraudulent actually led to lower turnout. And I think that this could actually work in the favor of Democrats. And it's a midterm, which which already is going to have lower turnout. And I also wonder if they, if not if Donald Trump can maintain his rage, and but I wonder whether his supporters can maintain their rage through to the 2022 election. Because I just think they're getting tired of being political animals and they're off going to Sturgis on their motorcycle. And we have to remember there is a rage on the other side too. The whole thing, the whole conspiracy theory increases the rage on the Democrat side to say, hey, we and, and the voter suppression, which is pretty strong in Wisconsin. I mean, that's what actually got Georgia to to have, I mean, relatively very high turnout for a special election. It may be the case for the midterm. Uh, I mean, we are going to talk about, I don't know if you are done, Nick, but that's actually coming up. To- well, one final thing, just one final thing on this point, which is we can look at recent polling, which, look, it doesn't prove anything, but it's indicative of a possible shift, which is that uh, for the first time uh, in about 10 years, you have uh, the GOP electorate saying that they uh, support the Republican Party uh, in higher numbers than they do Donald Trump. Um, And so that's a good thing, I think. Uh, We want this electorate to shift away from a singular individual. Uh, But look, that's one poll. We'll have to see how that plays out. Well, I just want to put the caveat that, you know, we can... Hopefully the polls have been correcting themselves for the mistakes they've made before, for the errors. But um, it's not clear to me that there is such a distinction today between the party and him. And him. Uh, and that actually may play a role for the Democrats, again, as I, I mentioned before. Um, so it's not, I, I know the poll, but... It seems that most of the candidates will be candidates that he would support. Yeah. I, look, 2022 is going to be the evidence that we want to see that will prove these you know, hypotheses correct or, or incorrect. So, so there are a couple of candidates that are still in, in Democratic districts with PVI Democrats that stay Democrat, maybe lower the bit, uh, but they are still vulnerable. And uh, Pappas in New Hampshire or one is an example of that. Uh, he won by a pretty... Uh, comfortable margin of a few points, yet there is a Senate election that's very tight in New Hampshire. New Hampshire is not really, you know, it's a purple state in some ways. So he's at risk, as well as, for example, Elisa Slotkin in Michigan 8. She won by four points consistently in the last two elections, but it's only by four points. She's a very moderate very strong, I think, as strong as you can put almost candidate and incumbent, but still vulnerable, as is Andy Kim, even though he's he's in New Jersey 3, but kind of Tom Malinowski, he shifted, he flipped the district in 2018. He kind of mentioned, managed to to keep it on uh, in 2020, but there are still some candidates that, especially ones that flipped the district in this blue wave in 2018, managed to keep the district um, and the House seat in 2020, but given a strong challenger, maybe in jeopardy. And that leads me to the factors that we don't know about. Uh, some of them are, we just 
talked about the turnout. This will be key of how people will be motivated in a midterm to go and vote in lieu of this uh, base and the, the whole uh, factor of the former guy that's still very much leading, I guess. He's, um, I mean, you see Elise Stefanik. She has just said he is the leader of our party. And so how that will play for both sides, for energizing both sides and the vote of suppression. You wanted to say something, Michelle? Yeah, I was going to jump in on what would actually drive those turnout numbers. And I think that the key here is legislation that gets passed. Well, how people will feel about a COVID relief bill, how people feel about the pandemic was dealt with, and what this infrastructure bill has in front of us. If people are happy with that, I think people will turn out to the polls. If people are unhappy about that, I'm certain they will come out to the polls. I'm slightly, I mean, you can be worried, though, that people who are happy with what's going on is not uh, motivating enough to get them out, right? And so that decreases turnout. And but also on the other, yeah, but maybe on the other side, if they are happy with the legislation, people that are independent or moderate will go and say, okay, we can vote for Democrats. It's not so bad. It's actually... But people mostly march in protest, not in support. Right. But the, I mean, I'm talking about those that will go and vote anyway, but how will they vote matter? So uh, so it, it has both impacts. And again, the challenger. We don't know much about the challengers yet. They are starting to kind of come out and uh, register as candidates, uh, fi- the filing their paper and so on. But those, the quality, as you mentioned, of the candidates, incumbent and challenger is key in a lot of these races. And of course, the elephant in the room is redistricting. Do you want to talk to us about that, Rena? Yes. So the two R's are, right, very important. It's the retirement and the redistricting. So first, retirement. Michelle mentioned there are five of them in the Democrat side that are retiring already. That means an open seat, no strengths of an incumbent. Those will be key, and they are remain to be seen how that folds uh, or, or how that pans out during the next uh, even year or so. And then redistricting. And this is really our uh, focus of our next podcast. But we want to kind of give you a little tease. And so there are a few factors. There is a new census. Some uh, states are going to gain seats. Few are going to lose. But even for the ones that stay with the same number of seats, and Michelle can give you a little bit of the numbers, uh, those are going to be still redistricted. So, if Michelle, what are the numbers in terms of how many gain and lose? There are seven states that are losing a congressional district. There are five states that are gaining one congressional district. And Texas is actually gaining two congressional districts. We know for the presidential that, ha- that losing a, uh, an electoral college vote as a result of losing a congressional district is a bad thing in terms of the state's overall impact on the presidential election. However, it's not necessarily clear how that impacts any state that has Republicans and Democrats in a given state. So it's not necessarily bad on the congressional level for a, for House seats to be negatively impacted. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. And also keep in mind that there are a lot of states, even though they're getting no gain or loss, the redistricting impact 
will be huge because those are going to be impacted by the demographic shifts that have happened within the state, which can be even more radical than just losing population out of state. And there are other factors, of course, gerrymandering and will HR1, which is going to overcome some of it, will be passed. So I know, Angela and Nick, you've been looking a little bit about into that. And if you want to give us a little kind of uh, a very brief preview of what to expect in our next podcast. Well, uh, one preview is that HR1 will not pass. So there's that. Um and so uh, I think it's important to understand it, understand why it should be passed, um, but to know that uh, the filibuster exists and so it will not be passed. Well, I, um, I see that in order to really do anything about the draconian voting suppression laws around state by state, H.R. 1 is really crucial. Um, may not pass, but it could it could solve a lot of ills. Uh, and there's there's some pretty interesting reasons why we need to turn to HR1, and one of them was a Supreme Court decision that we're also going to talk about uh, that occurred a few years ago. And, and speaking about courts, just to, to keep in mind that even if there is redistricting with a lot of gerrymandering, some of it may be, you know, stay and uh, be litigated in the court system maybe until after the 2022 election. But we will talk about all of that in more details about the impact not only on the House, but on the Senate and the presidential election in our next podcast. I know I've learned a lot uh, from you all today. So uh, at this point, I think uh, we should uh, call it quits here. And uh, Angela, thanks so much uh, for talking with us today. You're welcome, Nick. Pleasure. Michelle, thank you. Fun as always, Nick. Thanks. And Rena, what can I say? You've done a great job. Thank you. Learning every day. And this has been another Represent and Elect 535 podcast. And we will continue to bring you a roadmap to build a better Congress. Congress.